Well, it's great to be back in Milton. Uh, we're going to take out our Bibles. And so uh, if you have a Bible, you can take that out now. If you don't have a Bible, do we have Bibles that we can hand out if people don't have one? So raise your hand up nice and high if you need to borrow one of the Bibles this morning. And uh, Manir will take care of you. Otherwise, we're just going to jump right in. Uh, we have been together in this series called The Journey. And uh, we've been talking about these themes over in Mississauga while you have been doing that here in Milton. And we're going to be looking today at another Old Testament character. Uh, but this time we are looking not so much at um, uh, part of his narrative as we are at the words that he shares, the prophecy that he shares from God to the children of Israel. And last week we looked at another prophet, the prophet Jonah, and uh, kind of looked into his story and his own personal anger issues. I, I enjoyed uh, teaching on that one last week. And um, you know how that Jonah's anger really could have potentially impacted the, the Ninevites finding their way back to God. And uh, just not one of Jonah's finest moments. And there are great lessons for us when God interrupts our personal agendas, ignores our own personal preferences, or interferes with our personal comfort. And uh, I know that you enjoyed that, that talk last week. This week, we're looking together at the prophet Jeremiah. And um, Jeremiah was a prophet who had his share of low times his share of challenging situations. And I don't have time to get into Jeremiah's whole story, but he got into uh, some, some uh, difficulty where he ended up in a, in a well, in a pit, in the miry clay, one translation talks about. And if you have been around the church, you know, for longer than about 25 years, you remember the hymn, uh, you know, he brought me out of the miry clay. That's about Jeremiah. And uh, Jeremiah had some struggles. And he prophesied to Israel for God during a very difficult time in Israel's history. He was called to prophesy when he was just a boy in 627 years before Christ, and he brought some very difficult messages from God to the people of Israel, even challenging uh, you know, corrupt kings uh, to remind them that God was the one true power and uh, that they should pay attention to him. He was prophet in 586 B.C. when the city of Jerusalem uh, fell and when the temple was destroyed. A dark, dark day in Israel's Old Testament history. And he continued to prophesy during the 70 years that Israel was in captivity and in exile in Babylon. And it was a time of, of complete and utter hopelessness in the world where Jeremiah lived. Israel felt totally forsaken by God. Uh, they were living in exile, wondering, you know, when is God going to rescue us? But in Jeremiah's story, he's, tasked, he's also tasked with giving another message to the people. This time, though, his message was much more positive. And I want you to follow along with me as I read in Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning to read at verse 31. And here's Jeremiah's words. After all of the difficulty that's been happening in Israel and in captivity and everything that's going on, he says to them, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. And it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they, they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. No, this is the covenant I will make with the people Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, 
from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, this text in the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament is extremely, extremely significant. You see, because up until this point in Jewish history, God had made a covenant with Abraham and his descendants, the nation of Israel, and later he had also covenanted with with Israel through the Mosaic covenant, through the law. But Israel had consistently broken covenant with God. And that's even mentioned here in Jeremiah's prophecy in verse 32. But in these words of prophecy from God to Israel, through Jeremiah, we have the very first and only mention of God making a new covenant with his people Israel. And he says some significant things here, not the least of which is the fact that this new covenant will not be like the old covenant, the covenant made with their ancestors. Jeremiah's words signaled a a brand new day for God's people. This was a game changer. And as we look at the prophecy of Jeremiah today and and we begin to understand what really he is starting to unfold here to the people Israel, we see one of the very first glimpses of the Christmas story back in the Old Testament. Other prophets like Isaiah and Micah would also point the way. But these words of God through Jeremiah would completely change Israel's perspective and the world's perspective about God and about the way in which God connected with people. The term New Covenant, uh, it's, it's not only used here for the first time in the Old Testament, But it's also significant to note that it would not be used again until Luke chapter 22 and verse 20 when Jesus himself used it while sharing the Last Supper with his disciples. And he referred to the cup, the wine, as the symbol. He said, this is the symbol of the new covenant in my blood. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So why was this introduction of a new covenant so significant? Well, that's what we want to discover together this morning. And this this brought about a whole new paradigm shift in how people understood God. And it was cause for great optimism, hope in the hearts of people then and now. This new covenant completely changes our perspective about who God is and how we relate to Him. And just for the next few moments, I want to talk about three ways in which it does that. And so if you have your sermon notes, you can take those out now. If you're using your smart device uh, on version, you can check out the outline on there. But God's new covenant changes my perspective, first of all, from a God of the people to a God who is personal. From a God of the people to a God who is personal. Jeremiah 31, the first part of verse 33 says this, This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it down in their hearts. You see, up until this point in Israel's history, God has dealt with his people primarily, uh, you know, as a group through a few key individuals that he would speak through. And if we think about God's interaction with people, he was very specific about those that he spoke to directly. You think of Abraham, who heard from God, leave your country and go to a land that I, will, that I will show you. And then Jacob, you know, saw the ladder ascending and descending to heaven, and later he wrestled with God. There was some personal communication, but if you read through the Old Testament, primarily God spoke strategically to key individuals who passed his messages on to the people when appropriate. People like prophets and priests and kings. And when God gave the law, he gave it to Moses to give to the people. And the law consisted of guidelines or boundaries 
and would serve as God's communication between him and his people. This Mosaic covenant, it was general. It was corporate. The physical tablets on which the law was written were kept in the tabernacle, away from the people. And for the people to connect with God, they had to go to that place. They had to bring an animal sacrifice and have the priest carry out the sacrifice and sprinkle the blood on their behalf so that their sins could be atoned for. It was all very mechanical. It was all very uh, ritualistic, if you will. God was a God of the people corporately in general terms. The idea of a personal God was something that just never crossed their minds. We actually can see some of this kind of attitude or perspective even in, even in the church today, I think. You know, in some branches of, of the church and, and uh, the church of Jesus Christ, and even in our church, I suspect, you know, we can find you know, what we call or consider nominal Christians. People that, you know, they're, they're faithful to attend church. They come every week. They, they do all the stuff and they enjoy the worship and, and so on. And, and they, they think it's great that, you know, the church is reaching out and that the pastor is doing good work and that's his job after all. And, and so, you know, sometimes they even put a tip in the offering plate if the sermon was especially good, right? Nominal Christians. I know there's none here in Milton, but in Mississauga, I'm sure we have a lot. And, um, you know, but, but these kind of people, they don't, they don't interact with God in a personal way. And then we have what we call, you know, EC Christians. They're the ones who only show up at Easter and Christmas, right? If any of you are here today, I apologize. But, you know, they're, they're the ones who only show up during those times. And they think that, you know, they call themselves Christians because they do that. But that's their only connection. They think that, that you only connect with God by being in church. And that's the only way. We even have people who are regular attenders and maybe who serve, but, but they're serving out of, out of uh, you know, obligation and a sense of legalism. And they've got you know, hard hearts thinking that somehow serving and activity and, and good works will connect them with God. And this perspective of only being able to connect to God in, in a corporate way around sort of the, the institution of the church is, is one that is changed by Jeremiah's words here. This is the very perspective that Jeremiah was trying to, to sort of un... un uh, What's the word? Deconstruct. God said, I'm making a new covenant. I'm making a new covenant with my people Israel, but this time it will be different. And the law won't be some physical tablets of stone kept in a sacred place. No, I'm going to, you know, give it to you. I'm going to put the law in your minds. I'm going to write it on your hearts. And there's just this amazing change that's happening. The prophet Ezekiel also hints at this change in perspective when he shared God's message about the heart in Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 26. God said this, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you and I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And when God talks about writing his law on our hearts, you know, the one translation says on the, on the fleshly tables of the heart, there's this, this image, this picture of, of the tablets of stone and then the image of God writing his law in our hearts. It's very, very personal. God says, no longer am I going to just be, you know, is, is the covenant going to just be corporately with people? It's going to be individually with each and every one of you. Ezekiel was delivering God's message that, that people's interaction with God would, would no longer be mechanical and ritualistic, but that God would take a heart of stone that's cold and hard and give people new hearts and new spirits. Jeremiah's introduction of this new covenant to the people of Israel, it totally changed people's perspective of God and how he interacted with them. And his words would be echoed in the words of the angels on that first Christmas day. Note 
that the angels did not come and make an announcement to the priests in the temple or to King Herod, who was king at that time. No, the angels came to lowly shepherds on a hillside. These were just ordinary people on their own journey, their own quest of faith. And God chose to deliver His message to them and ultimately through them as well. And the angels came, and in Luke chapter 2 and verse 11, they said, Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, to you personally, and He is the Messiah, the Lord. This time, it was personal, and it is personal. God's new covenant, it changes my perspective from a God of the people to a God who is personal, a God with whom I have a living exchange, His law in my mind and written on my heart. And then secondly, God's new covenant changes my perspective from a God who was distant to a God who is near. From a God who was distant to a God who is near. In the Old Testament narrative, God was, uh, you know, essentially unapproachable, it would seem, as as we read through the Old Testament. There is this sense that God is cut off from the average person. Abraham went to a mountain to offer his sacrifice. Moses heard God speaking from a burning bush and later had to go again up to the mountain to hear from God and to receive the law while the people waited at the bottom. In the wilderness tabernacle, God was in the holy of holies and no one could go in there except for the priest. And, you know, he could only go in with great fear and trembling. They, they put little, you know, bells around the bottom of his clothing so that if he did something wrong or something displeasing to God and was struck dead, they would know what happened because the bells would stop ringing. And there was this definite sense that I'm here and God is, you know, somewhere way out there. I'm here, God is out there. I'm here, God is over there in that tent in the Holy of Holies where I can't go. There was this sense of of an unapproachable God. And if I need to connect with God, I've got to go now through one of His representatives. I have to go uh, to the proper place and the proper people. But but listen to the change in language in God's words through Jeremiah in, in the second part of verse 33 and the first part of verse 34. He says, I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Now God has used that phrase before. I will be their God, and they will be my people. He used it when he was talking to Abraham about the original covenant. But here in Jeremiah, God adds this language about about knowing him. How could the Israelites in the Old Testament possibly think about knowing God? And yet God tells them here, they will all know me from the least to the greatest. And in these words, we get an indication that the God who has seemed very distant, and I say seemed very distant, because he never actually was distant. And I think that's the, that's the interesting part. Different characters in the Old Testament, you know, discovered that they, if, they would, if they sought God, they could find Him. If they cried out to God, He would be there. But there was, there was this general sense that, that He wasn't near, that He was over there somewhere. He seemed very distant. And we get this indication now in Jeremiah's words that this God who has seemed distant is now coming near. He is, he is coming near and we can know Him. Anyone can know Him, from the least to the greatest, Jeremiah says. Because He will be near. He will be accessible. He will be, he will be with us. Fast forward to the Christmas story. You know, past 
years of exile and then 400 years of silence from God. No prophet speaking on God's behalf during that time. There's this real sense that God wasn't just distant, but that He wasn't present at all. He, had, he was aloof. He was silent. And yet the Christmas narrative in the Gospel of Matthew says this about the birth of Christ in Matthew chapter 1, 22 to 23. It says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel which means God with us, which means God with us. Matthew was quoting the prophet Isaiah there from Isaiah 7 and verse 14. And God had also used Isaiah to begin to get this message out that a new day was coming, that God would no longer seem distant, that the people would be given a sign, a virgin would conceive and would give birth to a son and he would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is the miracle of the incarnation an unsuspecting young girl from Nazareth would be the instrument that God would use in order to come near. More than come near, really. God would become one of us. And when the angel came to Mary, the culmination of what God had spoken through Jeremiah and through Isaiah and through some of the other prophets was beginning to take shape. Mary's obedience and her willingness to be used by God in this way and Joseph's willingness to go along with the whole plan were critical in the process. God needed humans in order to become human. John described how God came to us through Jesus in the most beautiful way in John chapter 1 and verse 14, where he says this, the Word became flesh and He dwelt among us, or He made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Eugene Peterson describes it this way in his message paraphrase. The Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. What a great picture. God moved into the neighborhood. When Jeremiah shared God's message that he would make a new covenant with his people and that they would each know him from the least to the greatest, I'm sure they wondered, you know, how is this possible? How, how will this be? But they never imagined this amazing miracle of the Incarnation. God with us. God in human form. This would have been beyond their imagination that God could ever become one of us. That He could ever become one of us. And yet, that is exactly what happened in the Christmas story. A tiny baby conceived by the Holy Spirit, born in a manger, born of a virgin, the Son of God in human form. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. We sing these words at Christmas time. And I love the way that one writer sort of frames it for us. And if you'll permit me just a few minutes, I want to just read you an excerpt from, uh, from some of his writing. He says this, It all happened in a moment. A most remarkable moment. As moments go, that one appeared no different than any other. If you could somehow pick it up off the timeline and examine it, it would look exactly like the ones that have passed while you you have read these words. It came and it went. It was preceded and succeeded by others just like it. It it was one of the countless moments that have marked time since eternity became measurable. But in reality, that particular moment was like none other. For though that segment of time, through that segment of time, a spectacular thing occurred. God became a man. 
While the creatures of earth walked unaware, divinity arrived, and heaven opened herself and placed her most precious one in a human womb. The omnipotent, in one instant, made himself breakable. He who had been spirit became pierceable. He who was larger than the universe became an embryo. And he who sustains the world with a word chose to be dependent upon the nourishment of a young girl. God as a fetus. Holiness sleeping in a womb. The creator of life being created. God was given eyebrows, elbows, two kidneys, and a spleen. He stretched against the walls and floated in the amniotic fluids of his mother. God had come near. He came not as a flash of light or as an unapproachable conqueror, but as one whose first cries were heard by a peasant girl and a sleepy carpenter. The hands that first held him were unmanicured, calloused, and dirty. No silk, no ivory, no hype, no party, no hoopla. Were it not for the shepherds, there would have been no reception. And were it not for a group of stargazers, there would have been no gifts. Angels watched as Mary changed God's diaper. The universe watched with wonder as the Almighty learned to walk. Children played in the street with him. And the synagogue leader in Nazareth, had he known who was listening to his sermons. Jesus may have had pimples. He may have been tone deaf. Perhaps a girl down the street had a crush on him or vice versa. It could be that his knees were bony. One thing is for sure. He was, while completely divine, completely human. That's from Max Lucado's book, God Came Near. No longer was God distant. No longer was He somewhere out there, unapproachable, unreachable. No longer was He far away. God had come near. And in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, and and the verses that follow, these are not on the screen or in your notes. You might want to just write that down, Hebrews 6, 18 to 22. But it talks about Jesus and His role in bringing the new covenant to mankind. And here's what the writer to Hebrews says. He said, The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope now is introduced, by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest. Jesus became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. It's not just new, but it's better. The old covenant, the writer here says, you know, it was weak because the law made nothing perfect, but a better hope now is introduced through Jesus Christ, and he has become the guarantor of a better covenant. The new covenant, it changes my perspective from a God of the people to a God who is personal, from a God who was distant to a God who is near, and lastly today, This new covenant changes my perspective from a feeling of despair to God's promise of hope. You know, Hebrews says that Jesus has become the guarantor of a a better covenant. There is hope in that statement. Go back to our text. The perspective of the Jewish people at the time of Jeremiah's prophecy was one of total despair. Remember, they were prisoners in a foreign land. They were in captivity in Babylon, exiled from their homeland and with no hope of any kind, no reprieve on the horizon. And they knew that God had made it all happen, or at least God had allowed it to happen, because He had spoken through Jeremiah and others about exactly why they were there. It was because of their wickedness and because of their disobedience as individuals and as a nation. 
And so the symbol of God's presence among them in the place where God dwelt, you know, the temple had been destroyed in Jerusalem. These were truly a people without hope. They were a people in despair. There was a complete and utter sense of, of hopelessness in this picture. But God, through Jeremiah, gives them a glimpse into the future, and he says to them, I am making a new covenant with you. I am making a new covenant, and as a part of this new covenant, chapter 31 and verse 34, he says, I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. Until now, up until this point, forgiveness of sins was only possible through the actions of the priest. When he would sprinkle the blood for the atonement of the people, an animal had to be purchased or cut off from the herd and brought to the tabernacle or to the temple. It had to be slaughtered in a certain way, offered in a specific way, and then the blood had to be sprinkled by the priest in order for forgiveness to be granted. Now God was saying directly to the people that he would forgive their wickedness and he would remember their sins no more. How would he do this? It was all tied into the promise of a Messiah that was first alluded to way back in Genesis in the Garden of Eden and often prophesied about in the Old Testament. And now after 70 years in exile and over 400 years of silence during which the Israelites had heard nothing from God or the prophets, the Christmas narrative records the message of the angels. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 10, it says, But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Suddenly there is hope. Suddenly there is hope. Go down to verse 13. It says, Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Good news. Good news. We, we could all use a little more of that these days. Good news is what the shepherds came to, to tell that day. It's what came to them and what, what, what they eventually spread. But it was also good news that came to the entire world. Good news that will cause great joy. For who? For all the people. A Savior has been born to you. To you. Your hopelessness, your despair is over. This is the one that you have been waiting for. He is the one that the entire world has been waiting for. The new covenant made God personal. It brought him near, and it gave us hope. Made God personal, it brought him near, and it gave us hope. I love the words to a lot of the carols that we sing. And I can't help but when I'm, you know, typing out these notes and thinking about the, the incredible hope that is in the Christmas story, but to be reminded about a lot of the words that we sing at Christmas time. And uh, this one is one of my favorites. It, it says this, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by, yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Another verse, the words say this, No ear may hear his coming. Yet in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. The power of the gospel message is in the fact that there is forgiveness of sin and the offer of eternal life. 
But even more than that, the power of the gospel message is that this Christ who was born in a manger 2,000 years ago, who lived and who died and who rose again victorious, wants to reside in us, to make his home in us, to, to dwell in our hearts. The miracle of the incarnation when Jesus came to be born of Mary was incredible. The fact that he came and that he lived in the neighborhood, absolutely amazing. But I would suggest to you today that even more incredible than that is that he wants to live in you. He wants to take up residence in your heart, in your life, Christ in you. Colossians 1 and verse 27 says this, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Will you pray with me this morning? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Heavenly Father, we are so amazed today to be reminded of the powerful truth of the Christmas story. God, as Jeremiah spoke those words to those people in that time in Babylon in captivity away from their homeland and without hope. He said, there's something new that's coming. Coming. There's a new promise that I'm making. God is making a new covenant with his people. And in this new covenant, it'll be personal. It'll be personal. God will come near to you. He will be with you. And he's going to bring you hope in the midst of your hopelessness and in the midst of your despair. And Heavenly Father, we thank you for these truths that we've been able to glean from your word today. We thank you, God, your word never fails to speak to our hearts. God, I pray that if there's even one person in this room this morning who has never said yes to Jesus Christ, who has never opened up their heart to understand that you are a God who wants to have a relationship with them, a personal relationship with them, who wants to come and dwell with them and be with them. God, help them to live, Lord, the way that you call us to live. God, if there's even one person who's not said that yet today, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, that God, you will speak to their heart in even this moment. And that God, at this Christmas season, that Lord, one of the most amazing things that they could do would be to open up their heart and open up their life and ask you to come and to be a part of their lives today. And just with every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around this morning, I wonder if there is maybe one or more, and you're here today and you've never said yes to Jesus. You've never opened up your heart and invited Jesus to come and to be a part of your life. And if that's you, and if you're here today, I want you to know that he is just waiting with arms open, and church and, and God is not just about coming to a place. It's not just about thinking about a God who is somewhere far away. It's about a God who wants to be with us. And so if you're here today and you will just open up your heart and say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Come into my heart. Make me a new person. I want to live for you. I want to say yes to you today. But I want to just challenge you to make that decision this morning. And again, while every head's bowed, no one's looking around. I would, I would just ask if that's you and you just say, Pastor, I'd like you to pray with me. I'd like you to pray for me today. Would, would you just slip your hand up just really quickly and say, yeah, that's me. I need to say yes to Jesus this morning. Anyone at all. 
just while we wait for a moment, all I want to do is pray for you. I'm not going to single you out, but I want you to know the amazing hope that is available through Jesus Christ. Is there anyone at all? Thank you, Jesus. Father, we are so grateful today for the presence of your Holy Spirit with us this morning. And God, we thank you. We thank you that as we reflect on this amazing new covenant, Lord, for those of us who do know you, God, we are reminded again today of the incredible miracle that you came near, that God, you dwell with us, that you are Emmanuel with us this morning. And so God, I pray, I pray that as we finish our service this morning and we go from this place in a little while, that God, we will go with a renewed sense of your hope, your spirit at work in our lives. And God, that we would be reminded again today that you are the God who is with us, that you've given us, Lord, your spirit to dwell in our hearts. And Father, we pray that you'd help us, help us to share that hope with those who we know. And even at this Christmas season, we pray that God, as, as we have opportunity to invite people into our environments, to the One Hope concert, and God, to the other things that are happening, that God, you'll help us to use those as opportunities to share. God, the hope of Jesus Christ with others at this Christmas season and help others find their way back to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.